Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord, uh, as we come to this passage. Uh, Lord, and even as we talk about generosity and giving, something that um, easily makes many of us uncomfortable, uh, something that is easy to abuse, um, something that is easy to ignore. Lord, we ask that every single one of us, myself included, Lord, that we would hear your words and that your word would actually transform us to make us more and more like Christ. And that we pray that we would even taste and experience that rich generosity that Christ has given to us, that he has poured out himself, even to the point of making himself poor, so that we could become rich. Father, help us to see the riches we have in Christ today. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, back uh, almost, I guess, 23 years ago when I was going through boot camp, uh, we did something in it called log drills. And you had this long telephone pole, maybe 15 some feet long, and we broke up into groups of eight or so. And you would have to carry this big telephone pole around this two and a half mile course. And there were very obstacles, various obstacles. You had to lift the pole over. Then you'd have to do different exercises, like you know, uh, overhead press where you're pushing it all up. And you had to do bicep curls with it and all kinds of things. And, and the thing is that the weight divided by eight or so, 10, 10 guys, wasn't all that bad. But what was bad was the weight was not in a backpack with cushion straps, but it was a telephone pole. So that each time someone moved, the telephone pole moved five other ways for everybody else. And everyone is getting upset at each other and blaming each other. You're not carrying your weight. No, you're not carrying your part. And this is when being tall is particularly bad. And it's the short guys have never been happier to be short when that telephone pole is hovering just an inch above their shoulder while the taller guys are carrying all the weight, but they act like they're still carrying some of it. But the smart groups, the ones who completed the course the fastest and with the least amount of cursing, were those that learned to work together. They lined up in height order, maybe tallest to shortest or whatever it might be. And that way, the log weight was more evenly divided amongst every single person. Each uh, person carried his own weight. It was not the groups that had a few strong guys that finished fast. It was those that learned to work together, where everyone literally shouldered their part of the load. And there was actually a joy and camaraderie when people learned to work together to be able to accomplish this thing that not one or even two or three of us could do on our own. And I think there's a similar principle in our passage today, that Paul is showing that God accomplishes his work not just through a few particularly gifted individuals, but through all of us. He wants all of his people, all of his churches, to work together to accomplish his work in the world. And he's showing that our partnership with other churches, participating in their ministry, helping them out financially when they don't have as much as we do, praying for them, building relationships with them, brings great joy to God. We're in the middle of our our missions month, and we're taking a break from our normal series through Luke to look at some of these themes of missions in Scripture. And if this passage sounds familiar to you, well, for one, uh, Anthony did his devotional on it last Saturday evening, but I actually preached this passage not that long ago. But as I wrestled on what to preach on, I felt like this passage just fit really well. And here's the thing, that I wasn't too worried about you all remembering that I'd preached it before. 
because I'd forgotten that I'd preached it before. And I figured, well, if I'd forgotten about it, certainly you all probably had as well. So uh, at least the nice thing about Scripture is it is so rich, I can preach the, you know, on the same passage multiple times, and we always will find new insights. Well, this year at JVC, we're wanting to better articulate our mission's vision to help you understand some of the why behind our giving and who we give to. And as we've been saying, at JVC, we want to invest in long-term relationships with indigenous reformed ministries uh, in places where there's not a strong church presence, not a strong gospel presence. And hopefully, as you start to understand this vision, you'll get excited about it as well and want to participate in it. I'm excited about it. I think we're doing something very unique here, and hopefully you guys see that as well. And here's what I want you to remember this morning in our passage. God accomplishes His ministry through us. God accomplishes His ministry through us. And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, the ingredients for sharing. Then second, the foundation for sharing. And then third, the call to share. So first, the ingredients for sharing. Uh, Second Corinthians is a, a letter written to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a major city in Greece at this time. It was a hub of culture and commerce, and the church there had benefited from some of that wealth and being in a major city. But at the same time, the church in Jerusalem, which was in some ways the original church, was, had fallen on difficult times. And we don't know all of the reasons or details. Perhaps we do know that there was a great persecution that had broken out in Jerusalem. And so because of that persecution and because of people fleeing Jerusalem, the church was struggling in new ways. And so Paul was writing to other churches in the region to tell them about the struggles of the Jerusalem church, but then also to encourage them to send some money to help those in Jerusalem who are going through these difficult times. And here, Paul wants to tell the Corinthian church about this amazing thing he saw amongst the Macedonian churches. Now, these churches uh, were poor and being persecuted. And Paul knew that they were poor and in hard times, so he wasn't even going to ask them to help out with contributing to the church in Jerusalem. He said, you guys have enough troubles of your own. You're, you're struggling enough. I'm not even going to ask them about sharing in their res- of their resources. But then at the end of verse 3, it says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Some of uh, my kids aren't the best at keeping track of their money. And and when a few dollars go missing because they want to go buy something, they look to where the money's supposed to be and it's all gone, they're heartbroken, right? But what is even more moving to me is then when one of my other kids feels bad for them, and takes out of their own money stash the money that their sibling lost and gave it to them, right? And it's like half of their money, but they wanted to do that. No one asked them to do it. They didn't have to do it, but they wanted to help out their sibling who was heartbroken for losing, you know, their life savings. And that is the type of giving that the Macedonian churches were doing, right? They felt so bad for their brothers and sisters in Christ that no one had asked them to share, but they wanted to because they wanted to participate and relieve some of the burdens. They wanted to, for these people in Jerusalem to know you're not alone in your sufferings. They were poor. They were going under incredible trials, but they wanted to give something. They didn't want their brothers and sisters to be suffering alone. They wanted to know they had people that cared about them. And why did they do this? 
Well, notice again verse 4 where it says, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They see their giving of their financial resources as a privilege, as a ministry. The word that's translated as service there is the very same word that is often translated as ministry. When you share of your resources to others, that's a ministry that you're doing to other people. Now, when we think of giving, the way that we often think about it is what I'm losing out on, right? What I'm giving up because I'm giving this stuff away. But these Christians didn't think of it that way. In their giving, they saw that they were gaining something. Now, what is it, if I were to ask you, what what do you think are the ingredients for someone to have a generous life, for someone to be generous with their resources? Often I would think, well, if I just made more money, then I could be even more generous. If I could only get a job that pays this much, then imagine how much I could give. Or if I could just get this much saved, then I could give even more. But what does Paul here say the ingredients were for the generosity of the Macedonians? Verse 2, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. I mean, this is amazing, right? Overflowing joy. Who would come up with this equation? Overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity. It would be like if you tasted some amazing chocolate chip cookies, right? And you eat them, like, these are the best cookies I've ever had. And you ask the person that made them, what'd you do? What, 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 how did, what's the ingredients? Give me the recipe. And they say, oh, I've got a secret ingredient. And you're like, well, what is it? And they say, vinegar. <laughs> and you're like, how in the world does vinegar make chocolate chip cookies taste so good? Right? That is what is going on here. Part of the reason that poverty, or part of the reason we don't think poverty can be one of the ingredients for rich generosity is because we often think of generosity primarily in terms of, well, you know, how many zeros are behind your donation? But Paul and God think of it differently. Look at verse 12, jumping to the end. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Now, there's a lot there, but... What makes a gift acceptable to God? It's the attitude of your heart, your willingness. It's kind of like, you know, when we think of giving, we just look at, you know, how much money it is or how much, you know, it's worth. But, But God takes whatever it is you give, and then it's like he runs it through your heart. And your heart has like a multiplier on it, right? So that if you're giving selfishly, or you're giving for the recognition of others, or you're guilted into it, that gives you like a heart multiplier of 0.1 or maybe zero, so that whatever your gift is, is multiplied by a tenth or even zero. And, and all of a sudden, when God looks at it, he says, well, this is not really any donation because your heart is not in it. That's why you can make a huge donation, but anything you multiply by zero ends up being zero. It doesn't matter how much is on the other side. But then if you're giving willingly... You're giving with the joy that the Macedonians had. You're giving, you want to participate in God's work. You want to share His grace with others. That gives, as God looks at your heart, it gives your giving an incredible heart multiplier. So that maybe your $10 donation is multiplied by millions so that God looks at it and says, this is an incredibly worthwhile, incredibly generous donation. 
It's how that story that we have in the Gospels where this widow gives the last of her two pennies, everything she has, and that donation is seen as the one of the most generous donations ever given in God's sight. It's noted in heaven. It's much more generous than the billionaires or even you know, us upper-middle-class folks that give out of our wealth, but not out of our heart. And the, heart, the more that you have, the harder it is to give out of your heart. Because it's easier to give and not notice that you've lost anything. And this is why Jesus says it's so much harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So why is it that you're giving? Why are you not giving? The most important ingredient for giving is knowing God's grace, not how much you have or don't have. God's grace will make you generous. God's grace will help you see everything that you have and trust him that he'll provide for everything you need. So in your own generosity, whatever that looks like, is it reflecting the generosity of his grace? Can you trace whatever your gifts are through your heart and say that this is because God has given me so much? And this leads to our second point, the foundation of grace. You know, probably for all of us, myself included, when your budget feels tight, you're less likely to give. But the Macedonians were the opposite. They begged to give, not just what they were able, but as verse 3 says, even beyond their ability. They understood the foundation of giving. Now, what is the foundation of giving? If you ask people today, you would probably say something like, well, having a lot of money, right? And even the language we use betrays that, that if a wealthy family wants to give a lot away, what do they do? They create a foundation. But Paul shows that the foundation for generosity isn't having a lot of wealth, but it's understanding that you have a generous God. This is how the Macedonians had a rich generosity, even though they were experiencing extreme poverty. And where do we see God's generosity? Where Paul points us in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is a very dense verse, but Paul here is casting salvation in monetary terms. He, Christ, became poor so that you can become rich. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get a signing bonus when I became a Christian. That would make sharing your faith a whole lot easier, right? You just go around and tell people, hey, if you sign up and become a Christian today, within seven days, an angel will come down and hand deliver a check for $50,000 with your name on it. Right? And then for everyone you recruit after that, you'll get a $5,000 signing bonus. <laughs> how did Christ make us rich? I don't think any of us had that experience. And then how does it allow us to overflow with generosity when Christ didn't give us signing bonuses? Or when sometimes even following Christ, like it appears in the Macedonians' case, made them financially poorer? So to understand this, let's look then at verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. 
Right, so Paul here, and it's, it's called forgiving. He, he's not saying that, you know, you guys need to give so much that you won't be able to then pay your own, you know, rent. Right? Or you have to give so much that then you're going to be hard-pressed and not know where your money's going to come from. Sometimes we might feel compelled to give with such costly generosity. Paul's saying that's, that's not the normal, right? I'm not asking for that. But then notice what he, goes, he says earlier, that though we are not called to make ourselves poor so that others would be rich, he's saying that is exactly what Jesus did, though. Jesus made himself poor. He gave so much that it cost the infinite God something that he could say of himself, I'm poor now. Can you imagine the, 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 the hugeness of that kind of gift that it would drain Christ of his wealth. Now, the older you get, the easier it is to get used to a certain standard of living. Right? When you're 18 years old, you don't see any problem with eating ramen noodles and instant oatmeal every day of the week. But then you get older, right? and I get kind of grumpy if I don't have my fresh ground cup of coffee in the morning. Or when you're 21, you never think about what mattress you sleep on. You don't even maybe sleep on a mattress. Right? You just sleep on whatever's there. But then you get older and in your 40s and 50s and 60s and, you know, you start to get anxious before a trip because you think, well, it's not going to be in my own bed because I like my mattress. So imagine Jesus who had spent eternity only knowing the riches of heaven, one day waking up in a feeding trough. I heard someone put it this way. Imagine the buzz around heaven when the angels caught wind of God's plan. They have actually seen Jesus in his splendor and his glory. They know how awesome and worthy he is. They know how incredible heaven is. And then they hear that Jesus is going to go down to earth, and they're like, wait, Jesus is going to leave his king-sized sleep number climate 360 smart bed for a feeding trough? And he's going to do it for those smelly people? If you've always been poor or not had a lot, you don't know much else. But boy, is it hard to live a life of wealth and then wake up on the streets one morning. Jesus was the richest person there was, and he emptied himself of all of it to sleep on the street. Now, sometimes people say, you know, you can't outgive God and I think we can abuse that language sometimes, but here is one way in which it is clearly true. Who of you, who of us, have walked away from the wealth of heaven to be born in a feeding trough, to be betrayed, to be disowned by your friends, to die on a cross, a method of killing people that was meant on humiliating them, to then suffer under the wrath of God, your Father, hell itself, all because someone else messed up and you're paying for it. I say, no thanks, I'm happy in paradise. You know, I get the best sleep I've ever had up here. But Jesus gave up it all because he didn't want to be rich alone. He wanted to be rich with you. And so what is it, what is that wealth that he's given us, because we, we don't see it in our pocketbooks, it's something more fundamental, something far more valuable. Listen to Colossians 1, 27. 
For God wanted them, that's us, to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you the assurance of sharing in his glory. And friends, what if we really believe that? And I want that to change my life. I want it to change your life. That you believed the riches of heaven have taken root in your own heart. So what are these riches that Christ has given us? Paul is saying that Christ made this wire transfer, that he transferred something into you when you became a Christian that is of such worth that it actually drained the accounts of the infinite God. So we could put it in your account. It's not money. Why would it be money in light of eternity? Money is such a bad investment. It's Christ himself. He gave himself to you. He gave everything that he has to you. Petrus van Maastricht puts it this way, Christ lives in us and takes such possession of all our faculties in such a way that in all things, at all times, and everywhere, Christ's humility, obedience, holiness, and righteousness flourish and shine forth in you, and that Christ's life in all these ways is made manifest in us. Do you believe that is true of you? Because it is. If you're a Christian, Christ's life is in you. If you're a Christian, you don't kind of work your way up to these things. No, the moment you put your faith in God, in Christ, as I read in that quote, in all things, at all times, everywhere, the moment you put your faith in Christ, all of Christ's humility, obedience, holiness, and righteousness are yours. That is true wealth. You have the life, the essence of heaven pulsating through you at this very moment. So how could you ever be poor if you have heaven? And it's not that money doesn't matter. It does. We need it to live. But what I want us to see that in light of eternity, money is ultimately like a store credit. It's helpful, but highly limited in its use. But God is the source of all wealth. So come to him and he can give you something so much better than more store credit. He can give you true and everlasting wealth. And he can make sure that you have all the store credit you need to survive and buy your groceries and, and care for your life. But he's saying it is foolish to spend your whole life chasing store credit. That stuff expires after some point. Chase Christ and you will have all the store credit you'll ever need plus so much else. See, if this is true, if God has invested his very life into you, if he has drained his account to fill yours, if his future is tied up into yours, see, to become a Christian is to be united to Christ. That means that your fate is tied to Christ's fate. Your life is tied to Christ's life. Your future is tied to Christ's future. And if that is true, how could he ever forget about you? Because it would be like forgetting about himself. 
He's not going to then throw you out to dry because that would do harm to him because he connected to you. Why then are you worried about the economy or your investments or your retirement, whatever these things are? Yes, they make a difference. But in the end, they're just store credit. And God's like the Federal Reserve, and he can print all the money he wants, and it doesn't cause inflation. Go back to our passage, second half of verse 7. The Macedonians, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And that's the key thing. You give yourself to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. The key to this generosity is giving yourself to God. This is what Christ says, or what he means when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these other things will be added to you. And consider Romans 8.31 and following, in light of what we've all said. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us a right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Jesus Christ died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. That is wealth. That is eternal security. What can you fear if that is true? And that brings us into the third point, the call to share. Paul brings it back to the very practical. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there there might be equality. And there's a bunch of applications we can make here. I want to just focus on missions giving, which is why I picked this passage, which is really what the original context is about, helping other churches. As I said, our vision here for missions giving at JVC is we want to invest in long-term partnerships, these indigenous reformed ministries where there's not a strong gospel presence. In the New Testament, we see a strong precedent for churches helping each other out. There's always going to be churches that are struggling. There's churches that have more, right? We're not just, we don't just sit with what we have, but we care for the church around the globe, around the world, for those who don't have near the same resources as us. And because we're specifically wanting to focus on indigenous ministries amongst the unreached. It means that many of these places, a lot of our focus is in Kenya, uh, in Colombia this next year, Lord willing, uh, on the uh, Yakima Reservation. It means that many of these places are going to have acute financial needs. They aren't in places where there's a lot of Christians. They're in places that tend to be materially poorer than us. They don't have the the networks to raise money from outside like many Western missionaries do. They they are, in many ways, struggling, and yet they're faithfully serving God. And there's incredible challenges there. Pastor Sam, in his update video on our missions uh, dinner night, talked about how they're reaching a number of college students and young people, which is awesome, but the problem is 
that most of them don't have jobs. When I was there two years ago, we'll see what it is when I'm there this next week, he said about 70% of his church is unemployed. And why is it? It's hard to run a church when 70% of the people don't have good jobs. And why is it? Well, at least in that part of the country and probably lots of the world, it's because of high levels of corruption that continually suck the money out of the economy and only give jobs to people that have these connections and not fairly. Now, you can look at the statistics of Kenya and say, oh, well, it's 85% Christian. But as Pastor Sam often says, well, if Kenya is truly 85% Christian, why are we number one in corruption? And in Kenya and in Colombia, it's another place we want to support. In much of the world, there's so many needs. In some ways, they're like Utah. Right? Well, if you look at the surface, there's churches on every street corner. Plenty of people go to church. But you can go for weeks visiting those churches before you find a church that is proclaiming the true gospel of Christ. Right? And that is a big issue, and that is the root cause of why there are so many of these other issues. And one of the things that excites me about our missions giving is that we've been developing these relationships with these trusted indigenous partners that are around the globe. If you've been here at JVC for long, you know Pastor Sam, who planted Grace Baptist Nairobi, uh, came over here, I think maybe six, seven years ago, as we first discussed what would a mutually beneficial partnership look like. He's come over here a few times. I've gone over there. Our churches pray for one another. Right? And there are ways in which we can bless them. We have a lot more resources than they do. But there are ways in which they can bless us, too, that we need to learn from them about what it means to live as a Christian, trusting God in different ways and, and caring for people with financial needs. And very few churches in the West are directly supporting indigenous pastors and ministries. Right? Often it goes through uh, Western uh, missionaries, which is a need to send us over to various countries. We're supporting the Peaches as well, but one of their focuses is to help encourage and support indigenous pastors in Ireland. But very fewer people are directly supporting them. And as I said, our money can have a huge impact and blessing to these churches that operate you know, on 1% of our budget. And these people understand the culture they're there for the long term. They don't make many of the mistakes that it's easy for Western missionaries to make, even unintentionally. And they are our partners, our friends, our brothers, sisters in the Lord. And we can bless them. We can help there be more equality, like Paul talks about. So maybe you were wondering, or maybe you just uh, forgot, what did the introduction have to do with the rest of the message, other than, you know, Pastor John wants you to know that he used to carry telephone poles around. Well, that picture of the team working together, each person carrying part of the load, is a picture of what God is calling us to do. God doesn't rely on just a few you know, people that have a whole lot of resources, a whole lot of gifts, and say, you guys, go do it, and we'll all sit on the sidelines and cheer you on. God wants everybody to be part of his work. Everyone can't carry the same amount. Everyone's not gifted the same amount. But God doesn't want anyone sitting on the sidelines. And this is why he, God doesn't really care on one hand whether you can give a dollar or $10,000. He doesn't need any of the money. 
but he loves seeing you participate in it. He loves seeing that your generosity is kind of the fruit of his grace at work in your heart. And he gives you everything that you have. So whatever you give away, he can so easily backfill to provide for all you need. And he loves seeing your heart grow for the people that he cares about around the world. He loves seeing you, just like me as a parent, my heart melts when I see my kids actually being generous with one another. I could, I could give them that money they lost, but there's something so beautiful of seeing the kids care. And that's how God, as our Heavenly Father, looks down at us. And he sees our generosity, and it moves his heart. He doesn't want anyone sitting on the sidelines. He doesn't want a few people just getting crushed by the load of that telephone pole while you know, the rest of us are just glad we're short and we don't have to carry so much. And giving to other churches and ministries around the globe and in various parts of our country is a way you can lift some of the load off their backs. You can lighten their load by carrying a little bit, bit yourself. And you can participate in God's mission. And it's a way for your resources to be invested in something that will make a difference for eternity. And isn't that amazing, right? You get a transfer, you get a, the thing that stores never let you do. Your store credit, well, it's stuck in the store, right? But in giving to God's work, it allows you to transform that store credit into eternal dollars that will impact eternity. And what a gift it is to be part of that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us and just change our hearts, Lord. I know for me, probably for all of us, Lord, and we live in such a consumeristic society and we always compare ourselves to those who have more than us, forgetting the millions and, in fact, billions who have so much less, easily forgetting the millions and even billions of other Christians around the globe who are being crushed by various burdens. So, Lord, help us, even this little church, which is just a tiny drop in the bucket of your kingdom, and yet, Lord, by your grace and your generosity, you can allow us to do something that will have an impact in eternity, to show love for brothers and sisters around the globe. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.